Hello and welcome to the Manchester Israel podcast. My name is Stephen Rilston. I am your host today and I'm joined as usual by my two colleagues and senior writers Sandra Luckhurst and Tyra Marshall. We were both at the match last night. Um, it is obviously a surreal conversation I have, Samuel, because you were at Old Trafford yourself. The atmosphere was a bit different than usual. Um, from a journalist's perspective, what was it like in the press box, I guess, or, or the media room when the kind of that news broke? There's not really a word that sums it up. Uh, I mean, we always keep saying surreal in, in that context, and there have been some surreal moments in recent years uh, due to, I mean, we, we don't need to go through why, but it was a much it was noticeably hushed at the grounds. When you normally walk out to the press box, there's there's a real buzz about uh, the stadium with, with kickoff looming. And that wasn't the case last night. It was, as I said, it was hushed. It was sombre. Uh, I thought United did a very good job of you know, paying their respects at, at the 11th hour, effectively. Um, the, the news was announced at half past six. So that was only 90 minutes before kickoff. Um, and you know, I know it's the the usual done thing of black armbands, minute silence, flags at half mast. But they they reacted to it very diligently and um, in a very dignified manner. And it was just little gestures like the advertising hoardings were, were blacked out. Normally, you'd have logos um, in, in, in bright lights, um, very very visible during the game. That wasn't the case. Uh, Alan Keegan, the the compare at Old Trafford was um, very mournful as well um, in introducing the two teams there's no Europa League anthem so it was it was it was the done thing it was the right thing to do uh, the, the game had to take place as well I think the the turnstiles opened at half past six as well so it would have been very very difficult for all people who were traveling there uh, to have postponed that game probably gone the 11th hour if that's even such a thing so it was it was a very strange occasion to to say the least and I think the game was pretty much in keeping with the with the general mood as well obviously Ty the the team news was supposed to come out at 6 45 that was delayed in social media I published a little bit later as a mark of respect um obviously Samuel's just said some very nice words there for kind of move on to the football stuff now on the football side of things uh obviously Ten Hag made six changes uh, for that team uh, Harry Maguire and Lindelof came into that defence, obviously, and Ronaldo started up front, didn't he? So what was your reaction to that team? Because I'll be honest, when I saw that team news came, uh, come out, I did think it was a very strong team. I thought they should control that game against Portugal. Yeah, I mean, it, it was certainly should have been a strong enough team to, to beat Real Sociedad. Um, I, you know, I, I thought there might be more changes than women changes at full. Unsure. I mean, they were both in director's box, although Wambasaka was named on the bench. They're both both unavailable um, and obviously Ericsson kept his place as well. I mean, it shows how how vital, possibly the three most vital players in a way to Ten Hag and the way he wants to play. We know how important the role of fullbacks are in, in terms of going wide and kind of playing that number eight role. We've seen them in, and Ericsson as well in, you know, in, in terms of, he's almost a link between mid, uh, defence and attack and, and midfield at the moment. And yeah, it, it it was easily a team that should have been beating Real Sociedad. I mean, they looked uh, a well-organised side, but they don't, you know, they didn't really have any weapons. They've got David Silva, who's a lovely player to watch. Um, the um, uh, Kubo, I, I can't pronounce his first name. The, the Japanese um, guy was was really good in the night, and again, looks a nice, creative player. But no major, you know, no major standout stars in that team. They're a decent side, but it, it was easily a strong enough side for United to win. But it, it just kind of felt flat, and you know, it. it, it 
he also got a link to it. it was obviously a somber occasion as Samuel said it was a weird build up and obviously the even the players warming up and there's no pre-match music being played and the tannoy's completely silent it just it felt very strange but from from the moment the game kicked off really it was within 10 15 minutes i think we were all saying it was a flat performance from united and it it stayed that way really and you know obviously there was there's been no post match with ten hag so we, we don't really know any of the thinking but I can only presume the two substitutions at half time were pre-planned um Dallow and, and Ericsson, both players who played a lot of minutes this season so presume that was pre-planned but once Ericsson had gone off they didn't really you know it never looked like creating anything really and obviously we'll, we'll come on to the goal and they were hugely unfortunate to concede that penalty concede that goal but for 90 minutes it was just a very flat very lethargic performance and having been kind of been given the space to play by Arsenal and, and given space to break into by Arsenal it was another example of a, a team who defend deep with a good defensive structure just giving United problems and at the moment there doesn't look to be sort of the the cohesion and creativity to break those sort of teams down at the moment. Samuel, obviously, Fred started in midfield if we stay with the team section a little bit. And I think he had a very, very poor 45 minutes personally. He obviously played a little bit further forward uh, yesterday, a bit more prominent in that attacking midfield role. He played there kind of under Ranjik, who was better going forward last season. He contributed a bit more in the final third. But can I have a word on his performance last night? And also, obviously, Ericsson was a bit deeper in that midfield, but he was fantastic again. I Obviously, a good result for United. Well, Fred played as the number 10, which was particularly peculiar when you had three midfielders on there, uh, a six, and eight, and a 10 in Casemiro, Fred and Ericsson. So a midfield that should complement each other very well. Uh, by switching two of the players around effectively, it, it compromised United having any fluidity in attack. Ericsson was excellent again, and as he's shown this season, he's he's occupied that Frankie de Jong role uh, from from deep, and Ten Hag is very reluctant to move him from there. But when he did get forward and essentially occupy the role Fred uh, was was occupying, he was it was excellent. He almost created an opportunity for Ronaldo, which uh, Ronaldo appreciated. He, he applauded his cross there. Um, whether the ball was live, whether it was dead, um, from dead ball situations, he was he was just a threat, and it's it's strange that clearly, I mean, Dallow and Ericsson emerged for the second half in tracksuits and already looked showered, so their their withdrawals would have been pre-planned. I don't, I can't quite get my head around that strategy when you're coming up against a La Liga side. Real Sociedad might be underwhelming. They are a team that United should be beating, but they're no mugs. That It's not as if United were coming up against fodder in the Europa League, who they were guaranteed to be 2-0 or 3-0 up against at half-time. So when with the game goalless and you take off your best player, and also in taking Dallow off, they relocated Lindelof to right-back. And the goal actually comes from Kubo. Uh, out sprinting him, putting the cross in. Martinez did brilliantly to clear it out for a corner. And then the, the penalty was won from, from that corner. So even taking Dallow off and having an auxiliary right back at right back was, was costly. So it was just, it was complacent and frivolous uh, to make those two changes when the game was goalless. And I know you can say Fernandez you know, is a great, great option to bring on um, to, to give Ericsson a rest. And he probably should have had an assist almost immediately with that cross for Ronaldo early in the second half. But ultimately, Ericsson was still United's best player in the first half. And Sociedad would have been buoyed by seeing the back of him. And the stability in defence was compromised by relocating a centre-back out to right-back. 
So it's just strange thinking when you're coming up against a team, as I said, who are no mugs, um, where it's there's, there's no guarantee that you're going to be well out of sight at half time. But clearly those decisions were pre-planned. And again, it, it, in, in keeping with the, the strangeness of, of the game, although it was a defeat, it's a defeat that should still be relatively moot because United's next four games in the Europa League against FC Sheriff of Moldova and Ammonia of Cyprus. So if they're not taking 12 points from those games, then there's, there's going to be there's got to be something wrong, really, or at least you know, nine or 10 points. Um, I suppose the only thing that could be costly f- from this, uh, this, this element of frivolousness from United is that I think if they finish second in the group, there's a chance that they have to play a round of 32 tie, which we could, frankly, we could all do without uh, in, in the interminable Europa League. The group stage is long enough. It has to be seen as an, as an incentive to finish first, just so that you, you, you go straight to the last 16 and you bypass the last 32 stage. Um, just, you know, one of these pieces of illogical um, tweaks that you that UEFA have made to the Europa League. Um, I mean, it doesn't make it any more interesting, that's for certain. But if you can bypass the round of 32 and just go straight to the round of 16, that has to be an advantage. But maybe United have jeopardised that because Sociedad, like them, their next four games will be against Ammonia and, and, and Sheriff. And it wouldn't be a surprise if they uh, take on United in, in San Sebastian in November with, with 15 points on the board. Obviously, Ten Hag's got some a lot of credit in the last few weeks, Ty, and deservedly so. Four wins on the bounce the first time since April last year. Um, some great progress, some good results, obviously, against Arsenal and Liverpool, who will finish in the top six, inevitably this season. Particularly Sunday's result against Arsenal was, was impressive. But, obviously, Samuel's just talked about those changes at the break. You touched upon them with your earlier answer. For me, they were a bit baffling. Uh, obviously, Ericsson coming over touched upon he was the best player. Do you think that kind of killed any chance... United have, well, they weren't really playing that good regardless, I suppose. No, they weren't. Um, you know, it, like you said, they, they did take the best player off, but it, it certainly felt pre-planned. And there was also a you know, a total lack of jeopardy on the game. Samuels just touched on it there. United should still cruise through this group, regardless of, of what happened in this game. They could still easily finish top because it you know, it wouldn't shock me if Real Madrid, uh, Real Madrid if Real Sociedad... Um, failed to win at least one of the next four games, maybe against Sheriff, who had a big win away from home last night. Um, so there wasn't a lot of jeopardy on it. It wasn't a must-win game. It, it didn't feel like there was jeopardy on it. So you can kind of understand the changes. Um, and well, like I said, Ten Hag has got a lot of credit for the turnaround, the four successive wins in the league. But a lot of them have been built. The, the Liverpool-Arsenal games were particularly impressive. We had to dig in more against Liverpool. But Southampton was a back-to-the-wall performance. Leicester was a good defensive performance against a very limited, low-on-confidence side with one moment of, of real quality for the goal. And last night could have been very similar. They, they shouldn't have conceded the goal. It was never a penalty. And just that moment never came. Um, and, and against Southampton and Leicester, they kind of did score from one of the few moments of real quality they put together in the final third. That has kind of been the issue. The, the quality in the final third and, and creating these chances which aren't really happening at the moment and you know it was one nil to Real Sociedad it was a poor performance it could easily have been nil nil it could have been one nil if United had, had found the opportunity or had that stroke of luck so you know it, it wasn't disastrous and it wasn't I mean it, I don't think it was that far removed from the performances we saw against Southampton and Leicester really um you know I don't think it was a million miles away from from those performances because those performances weren't 
swashbuckling. We didn't come away from those games thinking this team are going to tear up everything in front of them. We came away thinking they're making progress and they've been gutsy and, and, and brave and solid defensive and that's what they've been missing. So, you know, I don't think I don't think it was necessarily a huge step backwards. It was a poor result, a poor performance. The attack did fail to fire. There was there wasn't that moment of inspiration. There wasn't that team move which have kind of almost characterised the goals. You know, I just thought they've come after good team moves and sort of real moments where three or four quality that never happened last night. Um, but you know, I don't think it was a huge step backwards necessarily because I didn't think it was that far removed from the manner of of those wins against Southampton and Leicester in particular, really. If we move on to the goal, then Samuel, it was obviously very controversial. I was watching the game with my uh, my friend who's a big Manchester United supporter, and he was understandably raging at the decision. For anyone that hasn't saw it, uh, the ball comes off Martinez's uh, thigh and deflects onto his arms. And I saw a couple, obviously, people debating on Twitter. For me, Samuel, his arms are in a natural position. I don't know what he can do in there. And I think that's just a disgraceful decision. The fact that VR checked it, still the goal obviously stood. We saw a lot of bad VR decisions at the weekend. And surely this is just another example of bad refereeing, isn't it? It certainly is. And to be honest, if if the definition of handball in Europe is different from the Premier League, uh, I, I don't care. I mean, you've, it's the, the fact that that's even been an issue in recent years where you play in one competition and the definition of handball is different from maybe a UEFA competition. It's, it's just bonkers. Uh, that It's the same game, apparently. And if you've, if you've got different terminologies for handball, everyone's not on the same page, which is a problem from the outset. And... I mean, the, the, I think Tide was even saying that the, the referees, the way they look at handballs uh, for, for pen, possible penalties in Italy, it's uh, if if that is a handball like that one last night, they give it and there are no questions asked um, apparently. But it was just it was just a preposterous decision. As soon as you saw it, you thought, well, that's got to be overturned. And in fairness, I think in the Premier League, it almost certainly would have been overturned. Um, it's you wouldn't put your hat on it with with the Premier League officials, but it's it's probably one that they would have told the referee to go back, look at that, and then he chalks it off, and we, we get on with the game. So it's the 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 bureaucrats in football have, have meddled enough in in the last three or four years, and there's there's no real end in sight there. Uh, again, it was one of those decisions that where it's happened in a Europa League group stage game and an opening group stage game it doesn't feel as uh, consequential as if it happened in a Premier League game and, and the West Ham one at the weekend was a perfect example in that that was that was a last minute equaliser for West Ham pretty much I think that that would have got them a draw at Chelsea with the Europa League even though it's you know, United have still lost the game and they've lost the game as a consequence of that penalty and of course, because of the other news as well, it's not going to get the traction that the West Ham um, decision and the Newcastle decision with their goal being disallowed against Palace got at the weekend because that's that's what we do on Mondays. We look at what happened at the weekend and we reflect on the most controversial aspects of, of the football that's been played. So although last night's call was relatively small for either grand scheme of things, it was another time example of how problematic VAR is and the way it's interpreted and how officials from different countries, or sometimes they are in the same country, they're, they're just not on the same page, that there is no consistency. But you've just got to be objective about it. That decision last night was a wretched decision. 
because as you say it hit his leg um the ball hit his leg first which immediately pretty much um deems any handball after that void and also his when it does bounce onto his arm his arms are taut against his body they're, they're tucked in um and the fact i mean martinez even got a booking for it i think which just added insult to injury so it was it was as bad a handball decision as you could possibly see i think and um you know but what what's what's the solution to it we we just go around in circles just complaining about how how poor the officials are and unless until everyone is on the same page regarding what what's deemed a penalty what isn't deemed a penalty what's offside what isn't offside which we're, we're going to just be continuing round and going around in circles and um you know it does get boring and i think i've bored i've just bored myself just talking about it well, I was just about to say that we do not want to be talking about referee decisions when watching football matches. That's just it's not on the agenda, is it? We want to be talking about the football. And that's why it's so frustrating, Ty. It's just happening yeah. time and time again. It's just not good enough. And Simon's touched upon it. Look, the stake weren't exactly high last night. It was a good one. quarterfinals or Hell on, isn't it? I was going to ask you, Samuel kind of looked this quite nicely into my next question. I was going to ask you, this is probably the million dollar question. What is the solution? How do you think, speaking more broadly, this can be improved? I know I think we're talking in December, actually, I recall a conversation with both of you on this podcast when we mentioned perhaps uh, a transfer window for referees. Could we see that in the near future? Um, certainly domestically. I mean, I, I tweeted at the weekend, obviously it was a, a terrible weekend for, for domestic officiating. And in what is essentially a European Super League just, just played in this country now when you know foreign we have foreign owners, we have foreign managers, we buy the best foreign players, we recruit the best foreign coaches and foreign managers... We have the richest people in the world come into the league, but we stick with British referees, even though they're generally poor and, and not good enough. So you, you do have to wonder if, if it will, there will come a point where we will just essentially buy in the best referees um, and offer them the best salaries to, to come and officiate here. Because I don't see any reason why that wouldn't happen. And it is clearly an issue. The, the ones at the weekend just shouldn't happen. You know, the, you can understand the one last night because that official is in, or as he does in Italy. And that's the problem you get with UEFA games, that rules are always going to be ever so slightly different in Italy to Spain to England. We know in the Premier League now, if, if the ball ricochets off your body onto your hand, it, it's basically not a penalty. It's not given. And it would have been overturned immediately in the Premier League. It's not necessarily the league elsewhere. You, you're, you, you are, you're naturally going to officiate the way you normally officiate. You can, it's the wrong call. You can see why it's happening. Um, the bigger issue is the wrong calls in the Premier League when... We're all watching somebody see they're wrong, and somehow an official who has supposedly reached the elite level is is watching a TV screen and, and makes that call. Um, you know, the, those ones are just utterly, utterly baffling and make you think you know, the, the biggest impediment to the quality of the Premier League is the standard of officiating, which is at an all time low. It's just, it's horrific. Um, but as we last night, I mean, Samuel mentioned it there. I, I, I could remember a spell in, in Serie A there, problems with handballs, and I think it was maybe two years ago now, they had a, a penalty given in every other game by the end of the season. Something like 190 penalties across the season worked out at one every two games, five a weekend. Um, I think Matthias De Ligt gave away a penalty for handball in four successive games, which is just, you know, in, incredible really for that to happen. And it shows that basically if the ball touches your hand in the penalty area, it was a penalty and that's how they've been conditioned to officiate. And, when we saw the replay last night, we all said that's going to be overturned. Then I glanced at the team sheet, saw it was an Italian official and thought that might not be overturned. And sure enough, it wasn't. And it is just a, 
I don't know, a, a quirk, I guess, of European competition, that you're going to get referees who referee differently. And that's not something new. That's been going on for years. You know, that was an issue. Um, you know, I seem to remember that was an issue that, that Fergie would regularly bring up, that officials would officiate games differently and things that you might get away with in the Premier League, you, you wouldn't get away with in Europe. And I think that's always been an issue for, for British teams. And we just saw it in, in a slightly different format last night. If we go back to a few particular performances and Samuel, I wanted to ask you about Ronaldo. Um, oh, you obviously had the ball in the back of the net. That was a fantastic head, I must say, uh, the power he got on that, but obviously it was offside. And I, I noticed him coming offside in a few scenarios and I thought, is he getting a bit too keen because he's not scored and he's trying to beat his man because he's lost that yard of, yard of pace, for example. And I wanted to ask you, obviously, what did you think of his performance? But also Ten Hag spoke at his press conference last week um, or in the week and he said that it's not enough or ready to start the majority of the game this season. Can you see that happening with the way he's performing? Well, the, in terms of the offside, it, it is over-eagerness. He is, it's, it's almost the classic cliche of he's trying too hard now because he's not got a goal that clearly where he's he's not got the legs anymore, he, he does need a head start on an opponent. There was an offside call last night that was just it's preposterous sometimes what, what the officials are told to do or the linesmen are told to do and that they they don't give the most obvious offsides um, when everyone knows it's offside. Just put the flag up and let's get on with it. Um, that, that ruling has merit when it's tight calls. But at the weekend, you had the Coutinho goal where clearly it was so tight that he was actually onside, yet he's flagged while he's got the ball and the whistle's blown and he puts it in the back of the net. And then you had the one last night where Ronaldo was about five yards offside and the flag doesn't go up until he's lost the ball best part of 10 seconds later. And look, whenever United next play, uh, which will probably be the Europa League next week, even though it's only going to be the Europa League, that there'll be certain players who um, could do with a few more, a few more minutes and a start possibly because United obviously won't be playing at Crystal Palace on Sunday. And you wouldn't necessarily say that Ronaldo is, is certain to start that game because they, they weren't better with him, certainly. He was he was very poor last night. There were a lot of really poor performances. I thought Casemiro was extremely cumbersome uh, and sloppy with the ball. He seemed to be more accurate with the ball when it was airborne. I thought he's, the accuracy of his headers to teammates was was excellent and, and very, well, um, very well executed. But he, he did not have a good game whatsoever. Fred was, was, was dreadful. And Ronaldo, as I said... It, you know, it, it's 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 not that he's limited as such, but he does look like a player who hasn't had a preseason. And when you are thirty-seven and a half years old, that is going to matter a hell of a lot more than when you were twenty-seven and a half years old, or even you know, five. Even when he was five years younger, he probably could have got away with it. But he he's still not at that level. It seems of of sharpness where. You, you would be confident and you'd be banking on him to, to bail United out or get a goal in um, within the 90 minutes if he was starting again. And there's, there's a reason why he's he's been a, on the bench in recent games and United have, have got by well enough without him. But there is another issue with that squad in that although they've streamlined it without actually selling anyone of any note, and it doesn't feel as bloated as it was last season. There are still fundamental issues with it in that, although it's been streamlined, I still don't think it's particularly strong. Wan-Bissaka was clearly kept because they did not have an alternative right back to Dallow. 
and he had he had advance notice that he was unwanted. I think that that came out before the end of last season. So they had three and a half months to sell him, and they didn't sell him. They didn't even loan him. Uh, he's missed two or three of the last games. Uh, as, as Ty said, he was listed on the bench last night, and then as kickoffs looming, he's he's nearer he's nearer to nearer us than he is to uh, to the pitch because he's in the director's box. And I'm not even sure if he warmed up last night. I know there's he's, he's put something on his his Instagram page in in, in solidarity with um, a sad incident in in London, and, and perhaps that's had a bearing on his on his well-being. Uh, it seems like he's been affected by it, which is obviously you know very sad. And yeah, taking him out, out of the bench uh, last night with with the options they had um, beyond him. I think six of the players on the bench have, have never started a competitive game for United. And as I said, with the squad, although it, it, it does feel smaller, slightly smaller than last season in terms of the, the squad that Ten Hag has assembled, he still had Tyler Fredrickson on the bench last night. Charlie McNeil made his debut. Um, and, and that's not with a lot of injuries. That's with about maybe four or five injuries. Van der Beek, Shaw... Uh, Marshall, uh, Wambasaka. I'm not sure if he's injured or or, or not. You know, it's, it's probably not not right to speculate too much into that. But that's not those aren't that's that's not an injury crisis, and they've they've got to be careful there. In the with that squad size, which is about 28 players there or thereabouts, there's a lot of filler there. In the they can comfortably play two 11s, but beyond that, it's players who are injured and also in some of the cases players that were available for transfer in the summer in Williams uh two and ZB Palestri was would have been allowed to leave on loan as well I'm sure had he not um, sustained an ankle injury in Oslo uh I don't know if you'd count Phil Jones in in the 28-man squad but beyond him it's uh beyond those players it's it's rookies like Garnacho and Zidane Iqbal who only really got into the the first team fold on, on the pre-season tour so it just goes to show even when they have a few injuries that are not particularly serious as, as far as the team is concerned it doesn't compromise the way the team is setting up at the moment because they are squad players it does show that they have limited options elsewhere and it's still although they've you know they, they did a lot of business in the summer eventually that squad is still not in a good enough shape that United would have wanted it to be at the start of the season. Samuel's just talked about Casemiro there, Ty, at the start of his answer, and I thought that was a great point. I wrote my lunch piece around him this afternoon. I basically just said, look, he was very underwhelming last night, and I think the last few weeks, uh, probably you guys as well, each time the team selections came out, the team news has been released. I've been looking for his name on that team sheet, and it hasn't been there, which has been quite a, a bit of a shock with Scott McTominay starting. Mm. I thought McTominay wasn't really that good against Southampton, but I think he's growing, he's improved. Uh, he's fantastic against Arsenal at the weekend. So does Casemiro's performance last night kind of vindicate Ten Hag's decision to stick by McTominay over the last few weeks? I'm not saying that's the long term, the correct way to do long term, but over the last few weeks. Uh, 100%, yeah. And I think if the game if the game was on this weekend, Scott McTominay would be starting ahead of Casemiro. He just he looks better than him at the moment. Um, you know, he, he did look slow. He did look cumbersome. It's interesting that, that Ten Hag has spoken about Casemiro needing it. I think he put a period of adaptation in his, his programme notes for the Arsenal game, I think it was. And 
you know, he's mentioned that every time he's been asked about him in a press conference and he's he's brought that up. Yeah, he's thrown Anthony in to start two games straight away, basically. Um, which makes you think there's you know, maybe he's seeing something on the training ground with Casemiro that makes him think he is not fit enough or not sharp enough to to be playing Premier League football. And you could kind of see that last night because he was he did look slow, his passing wasn't always crisp. Um strangely, his passing with his head seems to be better than his passing with his feet. Um, there was one brilliant headed pass to Ericsson. He's done four or five sort of really good cushioned headers in games where he's come on just to try and you know suit, ease the pressure that they've been under. Um, but yeah, that, that wasn't a performance last night that would have him in the team particularly. I looked at that and thought, I, I think it all week really, that the two the two players with the most to gain from that game last night were Casemiro and Ronaldo, and that they're two players you would think will be in the starting lineup sooner rather sooner rather than later. But on, on that evidence, you'd have McTominay and Rashford um, slash Martial ahead of both of them, really. I thought, you know, considering their record in the Champions League, they looked like Europa League players last night, as, as harsh as that is. Um, and, you know, that, that is a problem for Ten Hag. I don't think, obviously, we don't know when they'll next be a league game now, but if there were league games this weekend, Casemiro and Ronaldo would, would be back on the bench for me. Um, and potentially, you know, the there could be an impact in terms of the game next week. We'll, we'll probably do a, a podcast near the time to preview the trip to Moldova. But if next week's Premier League games were called off and there was no game now until the 2nd of October in the derby, there's probably a case for playing the strongest team in Moldova next week just to keep them sharp and, and in a bit of rhythm, in which case Casemiro and Ronaldo would would probably be dropped for a game against Sheriff Taraspol in Moldova, which would be particularly galling for them. But it, it's kind of the position they're in as a result of performances at the moment. I think it's going to take that little transitional period, isn't it? I think he doesn't speak the best English, does he, Casemiro? I think it's very broken. Mm-hmm. And uh, he just moved out to Larry Hotel this week, didn't he, earlier on? So maybe just a few more weeks to settle into life in Manchester. Let's hope he enjoys it a bit more than uh, Angel Di Maria did mm-hmm. and his wife. Um, Samuel, we'll move on then, just before before moving on to the Premier League stuff, sorry, in that, that conversation. I kind of wanted to ask you, sticking with the Europa League stuff, um, how important is it this year that United have a good pop with it? Because the last one of trophy in 2017, they really need to go to the last stages of this competition, don't they? They need to try and win it. They they can't turn their noses up at any silverware that's on offer this season. They're certain to go close to six years without a trophy. Uh, the last time that would have happened would have been uh, the it would have been the gap between winning the European Cup and in 68 and and win the FA Cup in in 77 which was obviously a nine-year drought so they they need to end that 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 trophy drought as soon as possible that the, the League Cup obviously presents that opportunity because that will be the first the first final usually in I think late February but with Europa League that's I mean winning that five years ago just over five years ago uh, ensured that that season was a success in 2016-17 and that is literally the only season in these fallow years since Ferguson retired that has been the only successful season United have had and you look at the the landscape in the Premier League this is an extremely competitive Premier League season it's it started much more competitively than it has in recent years and I'm, I'm not just talking about the top sorry not the top six but the the big six or the main six teams that we always think of but you look at the other teams low down the ladder whether it's teams that have got promoted or mid-table teams and they're making a good fist of it and they've taken points off uh, the, the big boys already. 
So this could still be a Europa League or bust season for United. Chelsea have tried to um, untangle themselves from their unravelling by sacking Tuchel this week and appointing Graham Potter on five-year contracts, uh, which is a marked departure from the way they usually operate with with new managers. I think the last Chelsea manager who lasted five years was was Dave Sexton, which is, an, I think you're going back to the 70s, nearly 50 years, which is, is pretty remarkable. That's that's that that's the culture at that club and that they clearly want to change that by, by giving Potter a five-year contract and Potter's a brilliant coach she's been the scourge of United already uh, twice this year and Chelsea getting their act together and trying to you know, nip that, um, that that bad start in, in the bud as early as they have done it, it makes it even more difficult for United to to get in the top four because those six sides, the, the way they were shaping up, it, it already looked quite daunting. So, as I said, that's why they can't let up in the Europa League um, any advantage they can get, whether it's winning the group or winning as many games as possible to qualify so they can rest players and concentrate on league games at the weekend. They've, 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 got, to, they've got to try and take it. And in fairness to Ten Hag, the team he, he selected last night was, was strong. Uh, it, it, it should they should be beating uh, Real Sociedad? I know you can say, well, they've not played together, not had much training time together, and all this. But when you see us linking up in five a side without playing alongside each other for about five months at times, um, you know the, the the telepathy just comes quite naturally, and it's it's not a problem. But it, I mean, in all seriousness, I think that team that started last night, United, invested something like three hundred ninety-eight million pounds in transfer fees to sign them. So. Uh, I mean, you'd, I think Real Sociedad's starting side might have barely scraped thirty million pounds. It wouldn't have surprised me. So there was a clear gulf in in player investment, and United should be expecting best from the players in that setting. Nothing will stop Rich Fear from scoring goals. Our good colleague, he's, uh, he's prolific in the five side pitches, isn't he, Samuel? He is. You, yeah. Usually, at this point in the podcast, we're obviously looking forward to, uh, to the weekend, and United was supposed to be playing. Uh, Crystal Palace obviously on Sunday afternoon tie, but the Premier League have took the decision to postpone all matches at the weekend. Um, I just wanted to kind of discuss that at the end of the podcast, really, because there are still some sporting events going ahead on Sunday. And obviously the government have said, look, it's, it's up to each governing body, make your own decision, pay your respects in your own way. So what have you thought about the Premier League's decision really to, to postpone games this weekend? I mean, it, it, it was a hugely difficult decision for, for the Premier League, the AFL, um, and the FA, and they they were kind of going first, I guess, for making this decision. Um, I mean, in the time we've been doing this podcast, the Rugby Union has confirmed that their season will start this weekend. The Super League playoffs are going ahead. It seems the Test match is going to resume tomorrow. So it does feel like football is probably going to be out on its own in, in terms of being off. Um, like I say, a, a hugely difficult decision. You, you can sense the arguments both ways, um, but it does... You know, it does feel um, like it, for me, it's it's not the right decision. Um, purely for uh, you know, the, in there is a lot of, or in, in the football industry, there is a lot of zero hours contract workers, casual workers, freelancers. There's a lot of freelancers in our industry who do games and, and get paid on an ad hoc basis. A lot of the staff at games, security staff, catering staff, etc., are on zero hours contracts or casual hours. With no games this weekend, maybe no games next weekend, they're going to go three weeks without pay, basically, at the time of, of a cost of living crisis. All the, the food for every game in the country this weekend that's been already been purchased and 
prepared. A lot of that is going to go to waste. Um, you know, it just seems a little bit unnecessary when the guidance was that that Leeds can make their own decision. Um, you know, it's absolutely right that people are allowed to pay their respects and pay their respects in their own way and, and mourn how they wish to. But it does it does feel a little bit unnecessary in that you know people's people's livelihoods are going to be affected by the decision, and I'm not sure that's. I'm not sure that's what anyone in the country wants. No one wants people's livelihoods to be affected when it, it wasn't particularly necessary. So, you know, I, I'm not sure it was the right decision, but had they made the other decision, people would be saying that wasn't the right decision either. It's it's hugely difficult. Once once that, that, that protocol guidance was clear that it was on sporting bodies to make their own minds up, it it became very different. And to, to us reading Twitter, it feels like they've, they've got it wrong, but at the end of the day on social media you follow people you're generally aligned with so we're, we're going to be following people who who have similar views to us the other sports that are making their decisions now have had longer to i guess gauge the public mood and and things like that but it does feel a, a shame the games are off when there was no you know no particular need to and, and for you know every, every professional there's an argument like say for professional games to be called off for the fa's we're calling grassroots games off and, and children's games off just seems you know wholly unnecessary really but it is unprecedented times, really, and, and a difficult decision to make. And, and it's one you, you, you could understand whichever way they go with, really. It was always going to be a difficult decision, but I think Ty's articulated that quite well there, uh, Samuel. Uh, would you kind of echo his views ahead of the weekend? Yeah, I've, I've nothing to add on that at all, to be honest with you. I thought you might say that, no problem. I think we'll end, end there then, gents, you know, completely. Uh, thank you for your time, Samuel, today. Thank you, Stephen. And thank you, Tyrell. Thanks, Stephen. And thanks for listening. Take care.